0: I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. Humans are natural-born story machines. This life, this world, this nation, it's all and only stories. Stories we tell ourselves and stories we tell each other. And those stories, those narratives, can help bring us closer together or push us further apart. And today election day, we seem further apart than we have in a long time, largely because we can't seem to agree on a shared story. So how can we find one? Is that even possible? Our guest today has some special insights about the power and pliability of our cultural and political narratives. Sean Kamak is an analyst and creator of the Narratives Project, which studies the evolution and divergence of political narratives as they develop. He studied cultural psychology at the University of Chicago, and his research interests include morality, rational choice, and cultural evolution. Sean, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Glad to have you. So before we get into what sparked the creation of your most recent undertaking, The Narratives Project, I want to talk a little about the foundational piece of that project, which is storytelling. Now, I fell in love with storytelling at a pretty young age, around three years old. I was sitting on the carpet of my parents' new townhouse, dictating superhero stories to my dad, who put them to paper on his typewriter. And when he read those stories back to me in his voice, I knew I personally was hooked for life. Now, in a recent radio interview, you said, and this is edited slightly for length, quote, my base assumption of this project is the human mind is a story machine. We use stories to understand the world, whether it's your personal history, which you tell linearly with causality and characters or your relation to other people, or the relationship between you and the universe, which is an existential religious narrative, or what I'm focusing on, the relationship between individuals and politicians and political issues, which are political narratives, end quote. So when did you first become interested in storytelling, and in a broader sense, the stories we tell about ourselves and about each other, the narratives we create to make sense of the world?
1: Yeah, well uh, that's that's a really interesting question. I don't know if I've if I've been introspective enough to look back at my own history and see. Um, so, I, I very strangely, I, I have a background um, in music. That was actually what my my undergrad was in. Um, I studied music, and I also did some uh, some uh, English and creative writing during my undergrad. Um, and that's where I first got into like flash fictions and short fictions. But it, it wasn't particularly what I was what I was focused in. Um, and it's always just kind of been a hobby. I like a good story. I like people who can tell a good story um i i've I've always been a big fan of like comedic stories and sort of understanding the structures of comedic stories um, yeah, and when I went and did my m a at at u chicago um I did a lot of work uh, but my advisor is a professor by the name of uh, richard Schwader. Um, he's a, he's a cultural psychologist and cultural anthropologist there, and we talk a lot about you know the ways that people see the world around them right which, which is a worldview right you can answer a couple of questions about you know to, to figure out what your worldview is you can answer you know what is true what is good what is real you know what am I and what is the best way to act and you know those basic uh, answers to questions basically give you a worldview um, and that but that's not quite all the, the way that's not all of the way we see the world um, people see things uh, in in linear forms like and I think a good example of that is, is to talk about your own personal history um, whenever you recount your own personal history or you consider it yourself um, it has a structure And you don't do this consciously, like you know. It's not like I'm sitting in my English class in undergrad, like writing up plotting something. You just kind of do this intuitively. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Well, hopefully it's not an end yet, where we're in the middle, hopefully. Um, uh, And you have, you know, there's there's good guys and bad guys, and there's consequences, and there's there's like like causal inferences you make about these stories. And it became clearer and clearer to me as I did my research that kind of stories are the way that people. See the world, and I know that's kind of a woo-woo sounding thing to say, uh, and but but you know, there's there's others who have said it before me. Like Clifford Geertz is a a, was a cultural anthropologist. Um, He wrote a pretty foundational text called um, The Interpretation of Cultures, uh, or The Interpretation of Culture, and in it, um, you know, he says that that culture is the stories that people tell about themselves. They tell themselves about themselves. Um, And he really emphasized the idea of culture as kind of as fiction, as, as, you know, where as as a fiction as as a sort of text that you can look at where there's you know interrelational facets of meaning all connected with one another and me as a researcher you know the, the person in the position of a researcher can can look at that text and try and understand the sort of systems of meaning that individuals use to understand reality but uh, yeah i'm just i'm fascinated with stories sort of you know personally i i think they're like like anyone else i think they're entertaining but i think a lot of what we talk about and particularly in the news and that's what you know what i'm talking to you here about today um we have this sort of this idea that it's this fake news objective truth paradigm in our in our news media and this is you know it's like i have the objective truth whereas that you know right winger you know uh trumper is russian disinformation or you know I have the the true objective facts whereas that is you know fake news left wing media um but I don't think that's actually the most useful way to talk about what's going on or or the it's not the most useful paradigm because it's not fake news. It's fiction is what this stuff is. These are fictions that we're telling ourselves about things. And that doesn't mean there's not an objective reality. Of course, there's an objective reality. And, and there are nar- political narratives and political fictions that are in differing degrees of accordance with objective reality. But first and foremost, they are not intended to be any kind of objective um, they're not. They don't function in order to have us understand objective reality. They just function to be useful because that's what they have. That's what you know. Anything that we've evolved for is because it's useful, not because it's necessarily true or necessarily objective or or what have you. We just evolve these things because they're they're useful. And narratives and political narratives specifically are no different than that. So that's kind of a very roundabout way for me to answer your question.
0: No, I think well said. And you're touching on a few things that we're going to be getting into uh during the course of the show. Now, as a fellow English major, someone who studied English in college myself, I feel like I can tell this joke to you because this is a, this is a safe space. Um, <laughs> what is the difference between an English major and a pizza? What? A pizza can feed a family. Hey uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it hits close to home. But um to speaking to your point about how we kind of are just natural-born storytellers. I volunteered with this organization here in Los Angeles for, for many years, where basically we would walk elementary school students through writing their first short screenplays. And one of the ways that we made that less intimidating for them was just by imparting the knowledge to them that they were already storytelling machines. Because a lot of people take for granted the fact that when we talk to each other, even the ways that you and I are talking to each other right now, we are constantly, I mean, I'm literally telling you a story about an event that happened in my life. And I'm condensing stuff and I'm cutting stuff out. And I'm, you know, I'm not putting in the part where I drove to the elementary school and got a coffee at Starbucks. Like we are so efficient at telling stories to each other that we actually don't even realize we do it.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah. And you know, it's important to kind of talk about, you know, what what is what is a story? Because we can be kind of, you know, frou-frou interpretivists about this, but I, I think there's a very sort of clear mechanistic function of stories because cult the, these these stories essentially what we're doing is we're we're transmitting information socially this is social transmission of information if i tell you about myself or tell you about some set of some some set of facts right um, I need to tell you that in a way, first off, I need to integrate that information in a way that's easy for me to conceptualize, understand, and then relate that to someone else, right? So when I've perceived a set of facts about something, and then I integrate that into what I think are the most important facts, and then I sort of order them into this linear way to tell it, and then I tell you, I'm constantly distilling this, inform- this this arbitrary set of facts into what's most important to understand. And then when you go tell that story to someone else, you further distill it. So all of these stories, particularly like political narratives and things like that, we have to understand that they're they're evolving as they iterate. It's like a giant game of, it's it's a giant game of that, that telephone game you used to play in elementary school. That's basically what political narratives are. But because we're just on social media, they iterate like, a thousand times in an hour because it's just so rapid. This rapid kind of communication, um, but no, I think it's I think it's really important to understand that that stories aren't just frou-fru ways of expressing feeling. What it is is ways to transmit knowledge in an utterance that is compact, concise, and um, essential. You cut what isn't necessary out of that story in order to to maximize its sort of utility for the next person you tell it to.
0: Yeah, that leads us really well, actually, into my follow-up question for you, which is in film school, uh, we were taught to master something that is basically known as the elevator pitch, right? It's It's the skill of condensing an idea, similar to to how we condense stories on a day-to-day basis. Usually in this instance, it's a condensing a screenplay down to basically something that you can reiterate to someone in the time that it takes to ride an elevator up to the top floor of a high rise or about 30 seconds, right? So in the spirit of condensing, in the spirit of uh, condensing knowledge uh, into a brief period of time, how would you describe the narratives project to someone if you were in an elevator with them?
1: Yeah, I've never been great at elevator pitches, as you can tell from my rambling responses to your questions, but I'll do my best. Um, we'll
0: make it a space elevator for
1: you. A space elevator, right. I'll do my best. So the Narratives Project um, is a email-based publication that studies the divergence and evolution of political narratives that emerge following politically divisive um events and they're analyzed um in in basically three different tools i use three different methods i use um some of them are visual uh using um more or less flow charts of what information i'm i sort of suspect is dropping off um and then just straight sort of what i've been calling political hermeneutics where i'm just interpreting these sorts of uh words and phrases and stories that people use and i condense that down into a short easy to sort of read email and that get sent out to people to straight to their, their inboxes. Um, and I've done things such as uh, the gentleman, oh, what was his name? Daniel Brown, um, that, that killing. Um, and I started with Kenosha shooting and I've also done um, debates and things like that. So yeah, that's my 30 seconds. I think I got that in there, maybe at 45.
0: We'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the Kenosha shooting, which is the first incident that i saw you cover and i believe was the first incident you covered because it was trending on twitter it showed up in my feed and considering your fondness for studying and deconstructing and examining narratives it seems like it's been a part of you for at least some years if not longer what was it about this year this moment that pushed you to launch the narratives project was it something specific about what happened in kenosha was it something that had been building inside of you for some time
1: well let me let me tell you a story it's going to be stories all the way down this evening so I was writing a cuz I just finished my uh MA at, at the University of Chicago and after I graduated my intention um has been to go and study uh, at a PhD. Um so I've been writing research proposals for PhD applications and I had written one about political narratives because this is something that I'm obviously interested in. Um and I, you know, it, it was a fairly modest short proposal as an ex- it was an experimental research project. And as I was writing this, one day I wake up and I hop on Twitter as I as I do. Um and I see this story about this kid in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And two people there, there's, there's two very different stories about it. There's one of them is that he's a, you know, a far right white supremacist, um, who was, who went into a protest and murdered peaceful protesters. And on the other side, he is a, you know, a a community defender who was helping to protect local, you know, his local community. And he was unfortunately forced to defend himself after rioters attacked him and, and beat him on the street. And I saw this and it's like, well, this is what I'm writing my, my research proposal on. So I just sketched out in like a word document, pretty crappy, like graphics. Um, I just sketched out like, Hey, here, here's the way that I think these narratives are sort of diverging. And I put it out on Twitter and kind of forgot about it. Um, and it got, as, I mean it showed up in your Twitter feed it got like semi viral at least in my world um you know a couple thousand likes and retweets um which shocked me because I did not think people would give two shits about my little like diagram I wrote out of this thing that people had already determined what was true and false about they already had their narrative so why you know what utility do I have um but it was really heartening the fact that so many people looked at this and said, "Oh, this is this this helps me to understand what's going on here." Um, and I had a lot of people tell me, "Look, you you need to keep you know I want you to keep doing this." Um, the first uh, sign I had that I should really keep doing this is that someone DM'd me on on Twitter and sent me fifty dollars on PayPal. It's like, hey, thanks for this tweet. It's <laughs> like fifty bucks for a tweet. Crazy. Um, so that was kind of a sign of, uh, that, that there's a demand out there. If, if someone's willing to spend, you know, send me 50 bucks for this thing, maybe there's, there's a, there's a demand out, there's clearly a demand out there for people to under to, uh, for this kind of analysis to enter into the discourse. So I was like, well, all right, uh, I'll launch what I ended up calling the narratives project. Um, and we've been going for about two months now I've done, it's usually about at least once a week, I send out an analysis, um, and we've been growing. And we've got a fairly, you know, a modest but very interested audience. Um, and it's it's a great for me. It's a great place for me to to discuss these topics and these things with people who are really interested in them. So yeah, that that was kind of the 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 origins of the project. It was a one off tweet that got a lot of attention, to my surprise, and a lot of people said, "Hey, keep doing this." So hey, I've been doing it. I'm still writing my research proposals and doing my PhD applications, but, but any spare time I have, this is what I'm doing.
0: The best comparison I can make. And I, and, and I guess I'm sort of telling on myself here as a humongous fan of the show shark tank. I, I mean, I'm I'm obsessed with the show and 80% of the the gadgets or the, the stuff that gets pitched, you know, it's interesting. You know, I watch is like the sharks, you know, bid over things. But every once in a while, right, there will be some usually super simple device or gadget where like this, the person will come out with it and they'll be like, it does blah, 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 blah. And the moment I see it, it's kind of like. When Paul McCartney woke up with the song Yesterday in his head, he had the melody of Yesterday in his head, and he started going around to his his friends, his bandmates, his family members, and he was humming the song, right? Because he had convinced himself that he'd heard it somewhere because it it, it was such a natural melody. It felt so recognizable that he was pretty sure that he'd heard it on the radio or somewhere walking about, and he had actually just ingested it into his mind. It was such a natural fit, similar to when you come across, you know, a gadget that automatically you realize once you see it is filling a hole in your life that you didn't really you understood in some vague sense was there but you didn't know what could fill it or that it needed to be filled and I think that at least speaking for me when I saw your Kenosha breakdown I mean as someone who reads probably way too much news like I was aware that I was reading multiple narratives about the same event and it was it's, it's incredibly disconcerting being able to see like just two news event or two narratives around the same news event being reported in real time and knowing that friends of mine that were either conservative or liberal um, in their own silos were only getting one of these two narratives. But being able to see someone like what you did, take all of that information and distill it into like this bite sized kind of graph. I mean it was like a light bulb went off and i think at least speaking for me i think that's why it it really caught on as as much as it did
1: well that's that's i'm uh, man thank you very much i'm really flattered to hear you say that um I, I i'm glad that that's the case and that that's certainly the case for you and it seems to be the case for other people um yeah there are i think people know that there are different narratives like there's two sides to a story whenever something happens that both the right and the left are interested in the right has the right story and the left has the left story but kind of the question is well how how did we <laughs> how did we get there why are there two different stories and i think a lot of the discourse you know there's only a couple of like logical answers to that one is one side is right and the other side is lying one is both sides are full of shit and one is both sides are right and there's no such thing as objective truth and one is Neither of them are talking about objective truth. This is just what emerges when people um, with different sort of priors and cultural frameworks see uh, the same sort of event. And I'm, I'm on that last one. That's, that's the one that I kind of – that I, I think – I think, you know, if, if, I can, if I can be a little bit, if I can look at my own project and see why I think it's somewhat successful right now, I think it's somewhat successful right now because it's actually offering something of substance. It's, I'm not trying to tell you what, what the true news is and what actually happened, but I'm not just saying the right says this and the left says that. What I'm trying to say is the right says something, the left says something, and here's why. And my and my here's why isn't they're both liars or they're, or, you know, they're both full of crap. My my here's why is that this is a natural part of human nature that we look at these events and create different political narratives out of them. It's just what we do. It's a part of human nature. Um, and I think that's a substantive answer to the question that I'm very happy that people Seem to like. I'm. I'm. I'm just. I'm shocked every single day when I wake up and see. You know, someone sent me an email and they're like, "Oh, this is great." It just. It just blows my. It blows me away because I was fully convinced that I was going to be doing all this research uh, in a university and maybe five people would read it and that would be a success. But now here I am with a fairly sizable audience who are interested in it, and it just. It just blows me away.
0: To kind of follow up on something you just said regarding there, there, and, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here. So if I, if I misquoting you, please feel free to correct, but the idea that there is no real truth, but that everything is kind of a, a fiction that we tell each other about events that happen to us. Right. And, and, you know, obviously this is very true of history, you know, like, uh, history is written by the hunter, you know, not the lion that the hunter kills and that sort of thing. But beneath all these layers of Cultural lenses that we all kind of have. There is objective reality, though, right? I mean, if an alien were just like hovering over Earth and were observing us with no context for what our various tribes or ethnicities or "quote unquote" races or communities or political systems were, and we're just witnessing events objectively, at least objectively as as an outsider, right? I'm sure they have their own alien cultural norms, but if they were just uh, viewing Earth from a distance, they could see the events happen. Now, they wouldn't have the cultural context to understand what was going on. They might not even know what does this red hat mean or what, what, you know, what is a gun? You know, <laughs> Not to get too, not to get too uh, high in a college dorm room, but, right. but th- that's all to say that if you could basically teleport a being here who had no context for what was happening, they could view the event as it was as a material reality. So I guess my question to you would be, how can you or anyone to depersonalize it, analyze an event and break it down into a left and right narrative without first being able to understand the events that actually physically materially took place?
1: Right. I'm glad you asked this, that question. Um, and I'll, I'll try to get to all the different parts of it. And if I miss one, let me know. So when you start talking like I do about narratives, And how I, you know, when I say it's not fake news, it's fiction, or I talk about you know culture as a fiction as a text, someone might hear that and they might think that I'm sort of uh, I'm I'm a relativist or I'm some sort of post you know postmodern researcher who thinks that there there is no such thing as objective truth. All there are narratives, Um, and and that that's couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, There are objective facts in reality, and there are objective structures of how we we act. I might get a little bit into the weeds here and this is something I haven't talked about on a podcast before but I'm going to try and work some stuff out on with this question if I can. When we th- when we talk about culture, we talk about the ways that that people act and behave. Um I think a lot of people, particularly anthropologists and social scientists, they fall into this relativist tra- you know, this relativist pit. They think that well, everything is subjectivity, right? You know, anything can be anything. When I was talking, when I was working with my my advisor at UC, I, I had a couple of conversations with him about this idea of deep structure. And when it comes to something like morality, let's actually let's not go to morality first. Let's, let's let's take linguistics first. Um, I think there are deep structures to things that are objective, and within those deep structures, you can have different subjectivities but those subjectivities are bounded by the deep structures so an example of a deep structure that i like to use is um language so there is no universal human language but language is a human universal um, and the deep structure of that is well one one at one one deep structure of that um, there's loads but one to go into is phonemes right there's there's a fixed number of phonemes that the human you know head can produce right we have a fixed bounded like morphology and there's a fixed number of phonemes that we can produce which means the kinds of utterances and the and the numbers of utterances and the combinations of utterances that we make are fixed right this is this is kind of the idea of how deep structure bounds um certain phenomenon now within that deep structure of like fixed phonemes um you can have a a variety of different languages produced but language isn't just some relative thing that that is arbitrarily constructed so so too i think with things like morality and there's a whole podcast to go into into that um but also so too with with these political narratives that i'm taught that we're talking about Um, so two different people with two different moral foundations. Let's say you're a conservative on one hand and a progressive on the other. Um, And you, you know, the conservative has this moral idea of like community and authority and something like, 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 like hierarchy. And the progressive has this more like egalitarian, ethic and is sort of anti-hierarchy. And, uh, you know, their their moral basis is really into sort of protecting weak things, more or less. Uh, You know, there's there's more to it than that. It's kind of a crude way to put it. But let's say that that's their moral foundation, which is part of it. Um, They look at something um, with their different frameworks, which are not arbitrarily emergent. I think they're sort of, I, well, they, they are emergent, but they're not arbitrarily chosen. Those two different people look at the same thing and they see two different things. Now, what, what can we take away from that? We can take away that one's wrong and the other one's right. We can take away that both are right and truth is relative, but that's obviously not the case but the 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 structures that i guess this is what i'm getting to is that the structures of the way that political narratives emerge far from being just arbitrary creations of power like lots of postmodernists say are their emergent phenomenon because what a narrative is and this is just sort of a, a a basis of cultural evolution is the idea that culture transmitted anything that's socially transmitted is subject to darwinian processes and what that means is some information is lost some information um, is transmitted and some information is varied right and that's basically just darwinian evolution right there so when you take that assumption and then uh, and then we play the telephone game you know based in our own moral sort of orientations you can have two people look at something and rapidly create in their own little bubbles. Uh, their own communities, to very different political narratives about what happened. Um, and I think those structures, like Darwinian, that kind of Darwinian evolution, it's, uh, when, you, when you point it out like that, it's like kind of a self-evident thing. It's like, oh yeah, some information is transmitted, some information does die off, and some information does mutate. That's obvious. And that's a sort of deep structural objective truth that... Bounds subjective subjectivities and subjective narratives of perceptions of of things, and then those subjectivities are are trying to interpret objective events, so it's like our we basically have a subjective sandwich here it's like two objective pieces of bread and the subjective sandwich in the middle, the subjective filling in the middle. what a comparison but yeah so that that that's kind of what I think, so I think there are deep sort of deep structural objective truths and um Sort of events can be objective, but the way that we see those can be subjective now that doesn 't mean we 're incapable of of actually discerning objective truth. I think we are capable of discerning objective truth, and we do so with methods like science that 's one such method we use. Um, And these truths, these are more objective truths. When you dig into them, you notice that they're quite messy things. They're not, they're fairly nuanced and they're not very easy to tell in a story, but we can understand them. We can, we can get there. Um, so we're not, we're not in any way like bounded to our subjective interpretations, like a lot of postmodernist types would, would, would have you think it's just that, That's kind of just what we do. And if you want to do that, I don't really care, fine, whatever. But if you want to understand objective truth, you have to understand the mechanisms and processes at play and take one step back and you can get further, get closer to the objective truth. Okay. So that was my runaround answer to that question. I hope I kind of worked out some of those, some of those problems there.
0: No, you did. I think that was a great summation of a problem that we as human beings will and have and always will struggle with, which is discerning fact from fiction, uh, being able to understand what is true. It reminds me of the opening story from David Foster Wallace's Kenyon College commencement address. I don't know if you're familiar with with that speech. Right? Yes, I am. It's called "This Is Water," and I'll just quote the the entry for the for the audience here because I I find it really instructive, especially as it relates to this conversation. Wallace says, "Quote: There are these two young fish swimming along." And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? <laughs> and that's kind of what you're speaking to, right? That, that we're all swimming in this water, the water that is language, the water that is culture, the water that we can never escape because we were born into and will die in it, right? Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is no man without culture. There is no, I say man, I mean person, there's no person, there's no human without culture. You can't escape culture as a thing, but you can escape your own culture and you can change your own worldview and change these things consciously. Um, you know, culture, culture, it's systems of meaning and, You have to have systems of meaning in order to interact with other people. That's like that's what a word is. A word is an utterance that symbolizes meaning, and if you don't have that, you can't communicate with any with any other people. We wouldn't be social creatures without culture. Um, It's just an essential element of any sort of social creature like us. Is that we will have culture, and it's not a bad thing. It's it's necessary.
0: Perhaps you've done some of this in your work at college and when you were pursuing your master's and and perhaps you will during your PhD. But as someone who is rather unfamiliar with this specific academic pursuit, but my my instinct says that something like the Narratives Project could benefit from perhaps cross-cultural analysis, basically going to your point that we can't escape culture, but we can perhaps obtain some kind of additional objectivity by observing a culture outside of our own. But then my mind goes to, well, historically, we haven't been particularly great at that because we'll then take our own culture and project it onto the culture that we're analyzing, right? Whether it's, I remember reading this um, really fascinating account of a Chinese merchant who took this long journey to Rome. This was uh, from like 2000 years ago. It's so funny because in the West, I think we, you know, we assume that in the West, and historically, we go to these other cultures and we kind of project ourselves onto everyone else that we see. And you know, obviously, this this has a deep rooted history in things like racism and subjugation and colonialism. But it was interesting reading this ancient Chinese merchant's recounting of his time in Rome because every way that he described the people he met, he was always tying it back to himself. He was always tying it back to You know, this is the ways in which they are like us. This is the ways in which they're different. This is the ways in which those things that they're doing are strange because they're not like the ways that we're doing them. And so I wonder, I'm putting the question to you, how helpful can a cross-cultural analysis be in achieving a kind of more heightened or disconnected objectivity? And is that, is the juice worth the squeeze? Are we able to, when looking at another culture like if you were to you know hire on like a you know a a Japanese or a French researcher to analyze American politics would their outsider perspective be more beneficial than the cultural lens they're viewing it through that might cloud their judgment
1: yeah um what what we're talking about is is pretty essential and i i want to read something just a quick quote from my advisor at UC um and i think answers this question a little bit um And here it is, it says, quote, the knowable world is incomplete if seen from any one point of view, incoherent if seen from all points of view at once, and empty if seen from nowhere in particular. And what my advisor, Richard Schweider, does is he advocates for the view from many wares. right? So it's not that we're just looking at it from one point of view, which is sort of, um, it's like looking at the world through an American lens only. Let's put it that way. Um, there's also the, the view of looking at all points of view at once, which is sort of that postmodern way of looking at things. It's like there is no objective truth. There's only just these varieties of different stories, it, al- although many of them are incompatible. And then there's the sort of the view from nowhere, right? Which is where someone tries to just see things as a detached sort of impartial person, like a, a, you know the anthropologist from Mars, the alien that you talked about earlier. That's sort of the view from nowhere. Um, and what I, what, I, what I think the way to look, do this is the view from manywheres, which is to understand that I, I have a view and I have a position and I have a sort of cultural framework, but I can, if I try, frame switch I can consciously try and I can see things from other points of view um, and go into other people's cultural shoes and look at the world and have that light bulb where I go, ah, I get it. I get why they see it that way. And then you can sort of go back into your own shoes to live your live your daily life. and But, the, you know, the question of do we benefit from cross-cultural analysis? Yes, but I don't think that means we have to get a Japanese, you know, anthropologist to look at America. I think you can get just as much um, utility uh, out of the research by being an American who f- switches a frame into a sort of a, looks at things with the Japanese um, sort of perspective, let's say. Um, but no, I think, I think frame switching is, is, is very important. And right now, because, you know, and to be, to be fair, I am somewhat of an, a, you know, American centric because I'm not particularly you know worldly. I, I don't quite know what's going on in Europe, um, or, or other continents, but I do know America and I know American politics and American culture quite well. So that's kind of what I emphasize here. And I think there's enough of a difference. And I think that's something that people don't get very often is that American, there is no such thing. I might get a little bit of Flack for this, but there is no such thing as an American culture That just doesn't exist. There's no such thing as an American culture. There are American cultures right? There are, you know, Southern Appalachian, like where I'm from, Southern Appalachian is an American culture, but not every American is a Southern Appalachian. So my point being is that there's a plurality of different cultural worldviews and a plurality of different cultures here in our own nation that we can be cross-cultural without leaving the border. We can frame, try and do our best to frame switch between, you know, the conservative South and the, you know, the liberal West Coast or the, you know, the progressive Northeast or, or Texas, um, without, you know, even getting a plane ticket. We can, we can see all this uh, in our own neighborhood. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to do.
0: I would add one point to your statement that there is no one American culture. And I agree with that to an extent. And I do think it's relative to our conversation around storytelling, which is when you're in a group And this, I think the same thing applies to labels like white, black, Latino, et cetera. When you're in a group, whether it's a country or an ethnic community, you understand inherently how diverse your culture or cultures are, right? But then the moment you look at another country, unless you do deep reading on it, what happens is kind of like a prism in reverse where all of the many colors of the rainbow of that culture, as they're being transmitted outside of its own borders, become like a single point of light that you're seeing. You know, and, and you can see this oftentimes. Uh, <laughs> there'll be like questions on Reddit, you know, where someone will say, Europeans of Reddit, what are your impressions of American culture right. if you've never been here? And they'll be like, burgers and patriotism. And yeah, and it's like a mishmash of Texas culture, Southern culture, Northeast culture, Western culture. And as an American, you're seeing all the different parts of the quilt. It's like you can see the whole quilt. An outsider sees like a few patches and then there's just a bunch of blank space in between. But that kind of happens whenever we as Americans, I imagine, are looking at outside countries. We can understand that our culture is many, but then when we look at France, we're like, oh, baguettes and yeah. you know, m- mimes and stuff. I mean I'm, I, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But to switch gears here a little bit, I want to go back to a statement you you said about socially transmitted information is subject to Darwinian evolution, which is something you mentioned at the start of your piece uh, about the Portland incident in August. And you went on to say, quote, some information is gradually omitted over generations of telling and some information is varied and emphasized, end quote. So traditionally, a generation is 20 to 30 years. It's enough time for a newborn to grow up and have their own kids. But in our modern hyperconnected age, a generation of information dissemination can take place in less than a day and sometimes even You know, a few hours, right? You know, like Covington happens. At first you think there's like this racist white kid sneering in a Native American. And then like four hours later you see the video with like the Hebrew Israelites and like all of a sudden the narrative that you thought you had in your head just starts changing rapidly, evolving. And I guess my question would be: humans take tens of thousands of years at the very least to evolve and adapt to new circumstances. And can we as a society, can we keep up with are we even built for a kind of information ingestion that requires us to be constantly re-examining and reassessing ever-shifting news stories?
1: No, we're not built for that at all. A simple answer to that last question. Uh, we're not built for that at all. And there's a lot of issues that are emerging because of that. Um, yeah, when I talk about generations, um, w- what I mean, a generation of, of telling a story well, you know, b- before there were, you know, look 100, 200, maybe even 1000 years ago, a a generation of cultural transmission was basically in alignment with genetic transmission. It was parents to sons, fa- uh, parents to children, fathers to sons, um and that culture was transmitted that way. This shifted a little bit when with like teachers sometimes it became like that age group versus younger age groups that was the sort of generation but now those generations can be minutes long and what i mean by a generation is a generation between tellings of a cultural story or tellings of a culture and the reason it's only minutes long is because we're all on twitter now baby and we're not talking to people face to face these are just rapid impersonal communications that ping around our virtual reality like a bullet out of a gun and that's why you get these emergent stories that diverge within hours of each other. And I think, you know, cultural evolution separates like genetic evolution, obviously, from what we're kind of talking about, which is more like mimetic evolution, I guess. And so those those generations are much, much quicker. And part of the challenge of cultural evolution is to understand why do some things Stick around, and some things go away, Um, and there's a variety of different theories and explanations for this. But this is a challenge of the field at the moment. But are humans built for this? Can what you know? (laughs) Are are we built for Twitter? No, absolutely not. We're not built for Twitter. We're not built for the internet. Uh, We're not built for a whole lot of technologies. And you know, I think this gets to a question of well, then what do we do about all this? Then, you know, if Twitter is a ecology, as I think it is, that you know it's an environment that selects for this kind of if twitter is the ecology within which um these sort of narratives evolve quickly and result in polarization which is kind of a, a a problem um and result in people hating different groups which is a problem what do we do about that you know what 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 do we do about that do we just do we just get rid of twitter do we just does, does the president take executive order and ban Twitter? Like, how do we, and there's all sorts of issues in, in, in play here. And I think there's basically, you know, I think there's basically two different answers to that question of what do we do about polarization in the age of technology? And I think most people answer this question as, well, we need unity. On the left, they say something like that, unity and solidarity. On the right, they say something amounting to like a nationalist or national conservative type thing. Like we all need to be American patriots, you know, but there's this, it's this idea that we're just going to put everyone who disagrees with each other in a room together and sing Kumbaya and get along. I don't think that can actually happen. Um, I'm not particularly optimistic that we're, that polarization is going to end. I'm not particularly optimistic that that ends ever because I'm just looking at the environment that people are communicating in, which is, as I've said again and again, is rapid impersonal communication. I'm looking at that. I'm looking at what I know about people, what I think I know about people, and I just don't see any way the polarization ends. And I don't think you can just fix it by saying, well, we're all, well, we just need solidarity or, well, we all just need to be patriots. What, what you're asking is, is, sounds great, but it's not going to happen. So I certainly have a strategy that I think would work a little bit better, but that's basically what people are talking about today.
0: Before we get to that strategy of what could work better, (laughs) this is going to be a little dark. And I have had this thought in the back of my mind since starting this podcast. It was kind of part of the impetus for wanting to start it. And I've probably wanted to ask this question to every guest, but it just wasn't topical. (laughs) So so you're going to have to take the bullet because it actually is topical here. Are you familiar with the Fermi paradox?
1: The F- no, I'm not the Fermi paradox. No.
0: Oh, I think I think you'd be interested. So, the, what the Fermi paradox is, or what it tries to understand, is scientists, astronomers, they know from decades of research that there are hundreds of millions, if not billions, of planets within our own galaxy that could potentially be uh, habitable by living organisms, right? Um, and then, just statistically, out of those hundreds of millions of potential life-having planets, you know, you just take a few thousand of them, or ten thousand of them, and just do the math, and those planets should have hyperintelligent life. Now, the question is, if we have a pretty good idea based on what we've seen in in our galaxy, in our research with uh, astronomy and, and science and research, that there should, at the very least, based on what we know about how life forms thousands or let's be less generous hundreds of hyperintelligent life forms out there uh, across different planets within our own galaxy the fermi paradox tries to understand where the hell is everyone <laughs> and one of the hypotheses about why no hyperintelligent alien race has contacted us and it's a long list it's very interesting you know, some of the answers are that there actually are intelligent life forms that have tried to contact us, but it would be like a human being trying to talk to a squirrel, like they're sending us messages, but we just don't have the technology or understanding to receive them. But one of the scarier hypotheses around why we haven't found anyone is something known as the great filter, which is basically that as a society uh, like ours, earth, earth, transitions from a type zero to a type one civilization, a type one civilization being a society that has completely harnessed all of the natural power and resources within its own planet, right? In this case, that would be like nuclear energy, solar, wind, like any way that we could get power from our own planet, we've achieved it. That sometime between type zero and type one, every intelligent life form has destroyed itself somehow. Hmm. Now, usually when talking about the great filter, people are talking about something like, you know, nukes, or they've gone to war, or they've they've come across technology that is so destructive that they end up killing each other before they're able to make it off planet, right? But thinking about Twitter and talking to you about it, <laughs> I'm wondering if the thing that great filters us to make a verb out of it isn't a nuke, you know, isn't war, it's Twitter, it's social media, it's the Ending of any kind of cohesive narrative that binds us together as citizens or, you know, fellow patriots, right? We we lose the ability to see and look at the same story the same way. Now, we never really have been able to in a true sense, right? But there's a big difference between, you know, three news channels in 1965 that everyone's watching in the local newspaper and Twitter or Facebook, you know, and QAnon or RussiaGate. So I'm just wondering can we survive this? And if we can, to get back to hopefully something a little more positive, what is the solution, right? Because I see statues of our founding fathers being torn down and you can feel either way about that thing. But, you know, San Francisco is looking to rename, I think, 80 elementary, middle school and high schools, renaming schools named after Thomas Edison, Abraham Lincoln. Everything is problematic. And I just feel this thing metastasizing That could eat our culture alive from the right or the left. And so I put it to you, Sean. (laughs) How do we, you know, we can't, you're right. We can't, we can't nuke Twitter, right? We can't just all of a sudden just peace out of social media. We've opened the Pandora's box, but how can we at least mitigate the damage in such a way where we can survive it?
1: Well you 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 mentioned something in there that I I think is interesting and I think it's an impulse that a lot of people have um which is that you know where's our common you know where's our common culture where's our why why are we seeing things so differently you know and I I think a, a lot of people a lot of maybe let's say new liberals <laughs> new liberals sort of think that or um Uh, conservatives have this idea. It's like, well, well, you know, where's our, where's our common culture going when they're looking at the progressives, um, you know, deconstructing all this stuff and, and sending it down the drain. Um, where's our common culture? Why don't we see things the same way? Well, we don't have to see things the same way. We just have to not kill each other. That's it. You know, it's sad that people are tearing down statues in, in California, in my opinion, but they're not my statues and those people aren't my culture and i think the way we get out of this um and I, I i suppose it's similar to how i would answer the this maybe fermi's paradox um which i I've, I've never heard before now but you know the, let's say there's a you know 100 hyper uh species out there why haven't they visited us it's like well for the same reason that i don't go into my backyard and visit with the anthill they bore me and there's this, I i'm i don't give two shits about anthills um and i think there's a lesson in Hyper intelligent aliens not giving two shits about anthills which is the utility of apathy. There is a great deal of utility in not caring what your neighbor does. So I don't have to get along with people who disagree with me politically. That I, I shouldn't have to get along with them. I just have to not kill them, right? I have to, I, and I have to not be killed by them. I have to not get into such a tinderbox of an environment that all we have left to do is is go to each other's throats. And why are we going at each other's throats? There's a few reasons for that. One is, I think, political. Uh, I think American politics has become perceived to be and is a game of King of the Hill. The executive branch, or the, f- forget the executive branch, the federal government has so much power that. It's like we all have to capture the hill in order to get what we want, right? Even though we're different, even though the needs and wants of Southern Appalachia, where I am, for example, even though they're so different to, you know, where you are, we still have to place the same game for some reason. We still have to, we're forced into trying to come to some sort of agreement, which I think when you raise that sort of. that stake when you raise the stakes of like for example the general election and the presidency when you raise those stakes and whatever it is 350 million people have to all get together and decide something yeah there's going to be quite a lot of disagreement and quite a lot of you know antagonism because we all disagree on this stuff drastically probably more than other countries we drastically disagree on this stuff so What we need to do, I think, my strategy for how we get out of this is one of detached, respectful apathy, not some kumbaya love and hug each other out of it, but detached, respectful apathy. And I think you do that in a variety of ways. One, I think you have to decentralize political power. I think a lot of power has to return to states and localities, more localities than states, um, because people want to, people don't live in America, they live in their neighborhoods. Right? And there is no real like American society. There are sub societies and little societies and communities are societies. And what people want to do is they want to live a good life in their society. But a lot of people are prevented from creating, let's call it their proximal society by all sorts of rules and regulations and political governance stuff. That basically kicks the can further up the road into D.C. and raises the stakes. So I think if you decentralize things, if California and let's say where I am, North Carolina, uh, well, North Carolina is a bad example because it's kind of a purple state. But let's say something like you know West Virginia. If West Virginia and California didn't have to agree on anything, there wouldn't be any conflict, right? There's, I think there's just conflict because we're forced into this game where we have such drastic cultural and political disagreements. And I don't think the answer is someone has to sacrifice something. I think the answer is we need to decentralize and let people live their own lives the way they see fit. That's what I'd say. Because again, we don't have to love each other, right? And in fact, I think the age of one, like, Dominant American culture. I I think the age of that is gone and I don't think it's coming back so I think the only thing we can do is Try and let these little cult like these local cultures blossom, let these local cultures um, exist and let people live within their local cultures and simply disassociate with others they dislike and then don't want to deal with. You know, let Chicago be its own thing and let the rest of Illinois do what they want to do. We don't have to get into a brawl every four years because we have to get in the same room and agree on something. I would say, yeah, so a strategy of disassociation is, I think, the way to go.
0: Well, and I think the strategy you're recommending is the strategy that has kept America more or less together for you know its entire existence you know as, aside from of course the civil war i mean you're you're talking about federalism you're talking about the idea that what what is right for california might not be right for north carolina but i think that what we're experiencing right now and i think what would potentially is and would throw a a stick in the spokes of your bike would be twitter evaporates that distance, right? I mean, even just or or just technology in general, right? Like you're in my living room right now. Like your your voice is. I'm talking to you you're 2500 miles away when I'm interacting with you or someone else on Twitter. I'm I'm not talking to some abstract living off in North Carolina or Maine or wherever the heck. This person who has different a uh, different culture and different political views than me and is really in an entirely different cultural entity than I am and is and is only american in the way that i am because we all we all agree to tell ourselves that story i mean vancouver is geographically closer to me than you are and yet i do feel more connected to you because we tell each other we're both americans than i would to a canadian right Mm -hmm. but the idea that we can kind of just go and do our own thing which has served us quite well for many many years it feels impossible now when twitter doesn't allow it anymore. We're all just in basically one room, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're all just in one room, one state, one community, one neighborhood yelling at each other. I mean, it seems like the, the best way to live your life is probably probably just not to be online.
1: Yeah, I know. I agree with that. Get offline. Like, listen, like <laughs> if you have a Twitter, if you have any social media and you don't need it for your job, delete it. You will be happier and healthier. I guarantee it. Delete those accounts, 100%. But oh, so I, I'm actually going to disagree with you a little bit here because I don't think Twitter is one big room. Because what happens with Twitter is, is siloing. Um, people cluster into their own political worlds on Twitter. And oftentimes, more often than not, we're, they're not actually talking to each other. They're really not. Um, Left wing Twitter really doesn't talk to right wing Twitter that much unless it's about something that they both have to give a shit about like the general election when there's a general election or some, you know, something like that, the left and the right go at each other's throats. So my strategy is get rid of those things that force these two Twitter universes to collide. Let them just be separate. I know it's a weird thing to say. I don't think siloing is a good thing. Let me, let me put it this way. I think view, I'm a strong proponent of viewpoint diversity. There's a great deal of utility in, in viewpoint diversity, but, you can't fix, you can't not have people. People are going to silo themselves. You're, there's going to be left Twitter and right Twitter. And what do you do about that? Um, yeah, I, I know we're we're, we're going to be more engaged and we there's more opportunity for people who are culturally diverse to interact with one another. But if they have no need to interact with one another, they won't. And maybe that means they develop some sort of weird... Um, caricature of what you know if i'm a southern appalachian i'll develop some weird caricature about californians or something and it's not really you know you know maybe i hate them or whatever um but is that is that that much of a bad thing um if it means that we're actually having real world peace i don't i I think that's a fair trade-off um but no I, i don't think twitter is one big world i think twitter is a hall of a variety of you know, it's an infinite hall with infinite different rooms in it. And people only go to different, you know, rooms only start intermingling when there's a need to. And if we get rid of those needs to, we get rid of those things that prompt us and force us together, maybe we'll be better off. That's my thought.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And you're touching on a subject that um, I've spoken with other guests about, which is the idea of creating tribes of consent. And I think in this instance, you're talking about basically regional tribes, the Appalachian tribe and the Southern California, green juice and yoga Mm -hmm. tribe. I would say, and I I know you were kind of speaking, um, you were being a little hyperbolic when you said, you know, I don't think it's good if anyone hates anyone else, but, (laughs) and and I know you were being hyperbolic, but, but I think the important thing is, is like a, that the tribe of consent that that you're creating over there just doesn't stone apostates, right? Like that that you would be able to, if you wanted to pick up and leave um, North Carolina and come to California, you're welcomed with open arms and hopefully we encourage a society in which the people you left don't all of a sudden think you're a, a piece of crap, right? And and vice versa, if I wanted to to go off and live in North Carolina, which is a, a beautiful state, by the way, that uh, that hopefully I wouldn't be <laughs> seen as some kind of Californian disease, which I know some, Probably some folks be. I'm, sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry to say. No, you, I know, I know. It's a shame. Yeah.
1: We 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 <laughs> we, well, we turn wherever
0: we go into California.
1: Well here's a que- here's the here's my question then for you. And this this might be a little touchy, but what is wrong? What, what is the problem with one cultural group hating the other one? What's the actual, I, I'm not being rhetorical here, I, I really want to know, what is the issue with one cultural group hating the other one?
0: I think the issue is, well, I mean, a political group is a kind of cultural group. And I think we can see, you know, because politics is culture, culture is politics, it's all the same thing. It's stories all the way down. You can't compromise with people you hate. You can't um, reach across the aisle with Judas. You can't make a society in which you both want to live if you both uh, despise one another. I think what I would tweak about your idea, which I don't like whole cloth disagree with, I would say it's okay to have strong affinity for the group that you're in. Affinity that, that vastly overshadows the feelings you might have for an out group, right? So you could be Hardcore into North Carolina, and you could, you know, you could think like, oh, North Carolina is way better than California, and you could say, you know, in the abstract, oh, California sucks. You know, the taxes are way too high, and the traffic, and the smog, and everything's on fire, and yada yada yada. And I in California could be like, oh, they're, you know, I I don't know enough about North Carolina. (laughs)
1: Hillbillies, (laughs) exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I I was on a film shoot in West Virginia years ago, and that that was actually my. One, it it showed me that I needed to travel around the country much more, and I have since then. But it was a huge culture shock. I felt like I was in this small town of Parisburg, I think it was Parisburg, Virginia, which was just on the border of Virginia and West Virginia. And um, I felt, to me, and I don't. This will sound offensive, I think, but it, I felt like I was in another country. No, oh, yeah, because it was so dissimilar to anything I'd experienced in California or anywhere else that I'd traveled. Right, and I. The feeling of alienation that I experienced when I was there, I felt bad because I was like, why do I feel so disconnected from other Americans? But anyway, that's a slight tangent. But what I would say is, I think hating leads to an environment in which you cannot compromise with your fellow citizens because why would you compromise with someone you hate and why would they compromise with you? But I think strong in group affinity should be encouraged. Like, wave that flag, you know, wave that North Carolinian flag, feel pride in the accomplishments of your state and in the accomplishments of your neighbors and feel that your state or your town or your neighborhood is the best one, right? Like that's great. But I think we can do that without hating our fellow countrymen and women.
1: So the issue with hate is, and I hope you don't, know, I really like this topic. So I hope you don't mind me working this out with you. Not at all. Um, The issue with hate is that it makes compromise difficult. It seems to be the thing. Well, why do we have to compromise? Pick two random groups. Let's pick, let, let me let me pick quite a let, let me pick a, a difficult one here. Let's pick r- sort of radical hardline conservative Muslims who, and there's clusters uh, he, here here in the US and left wing like homosexuals let, let, let's take boys town in Chicago and put it next to uh, an insular Muslim community, right? So they have to compromise. How do you compromise?
0: So when I talk about compromise, I'm talking about like on a national or even like a, a state level, right because we can't break up into 50 different little nations. I mean we we tried as a country uh, well, not we but I <laughs> I, I guess your <laughs> your, your <laughs> section um, uh, but 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 people tried that right people wanted to, for for various horrific reasons wanted to kind of start their own nation right and and granted they were try- there was there was really no compromise at the end of the day with whether or not certain groups of people should be free or not but when i speak of compromise i'm talking about you know how do senators and congressmen and women who represent us enter into a compromise over things like taxes or things like policies, regulations, energy policy, et cetera, et cetera. The list is long, right? You know, like Congress is in session for a good chunk of the year, right? And the Congress, especially in the 21st century, is, you know, directly responsive to its constituents who are on Twitter and Facebook and whatnot all year round, right? And if their constituents hate one another, then the senators can't go into the back room and, you know, have a drink. I mean, it was, it, this happened as recently as like the early 90s. I mean, it started it started falling apart before social media i think probably cable news had had some effect on this but it wasn't uncommon for reagan republicans in the 80s and democrats to you know hash stuff out over some cocktails understanding that their constituents were quite different and they themselves were quite different from one another but understood that they had a country they needed to govern right and so the idea when i say compromise isn't that you know a super conservative Religious person, Muslim, Christian, whatever, and someone who is gay need to come to a compromise about, you know, what it means to be moral or right or whatever. Like those are personal decisions that Americans make every day. But the compromise has to come into, and maybe this is just kind of my inner libertarian talking, the compromise has to come into you live the life that you want to live. I will live the life that I want to live, obviously, as long as we're not harming one another. And the compromise is that when we send our representatives off to Washington, that we don't discourage any kind of compromise or at least most types of compromise over issues of policy and passing budgets because we would then view a Republican compromising with a Democrat on the Senate floor as some kind of ultimate betrayal because you've made a pact with the devil. I think that that environment that we've as a society created where any kind of compromise in the Senate or the Congress is seen as inherently evil because you are doing a deal with someone who hates us and someone we hate, we have to get rid of that. And that's why I think having affinity for your community is much more healthy than having hate. And you could localize that again to the two communities you're talking about. Like You don't want to encourage the the conservative Muslims to hate the gay people in Boys Town. Because, I mean, what, what will that lead to? And you don't want to convince the Boys Town residents to hate their Muslim neighbors, even if those neighbors are hundreds of miles away, because what, what is that going to turn to, right? You, you've covered events on the Narratives Project in which people who have been fed a diet of hate on the left or the right, like the Portland incident with uh, the proud boy, I, I can't remember exactly what part of the organization, and he was shot by, by someone right. who thought that he would, by a, a fellow who thought he was fighting racism by shooting a dude in the face. And then you have people on the right who are fed the same information that think that, well, you know, I have to go over here and shoot up these people because they're taking over our country. I mean, it's, it's hate only leads to bad places where uh, affinity love for your own group doesn't lead anywhere really bad as long as it doesn't become kind of a jingoistic trend. Does that make sense?
1: I, I, you know, I I know it's kind of a touchy comparison, like the, the, you know, religious Muslims and Boys Town, but you just, just take any religious fundamental group. I'm not, I'm not picking out Muslims. Um, It's just, I've done some ethics. I've done some research in, in, in ethics of like some of those, those practices. That's why that one comes to mind. Let's say you have a religious fundamentalist group who thinks homosexuality is, is abhorrent, right? They, they, they think that it is of the devil, right? They hate homosexuality. I disagree with them. But essentially, what we're asking them to do is change their religion and enlighten themselves, perhaps, become liberalize themselves, perhaps. And I I hesitate to do that for two reasons, although I, uh, you know, obviously, I don't think it needs to be said. I don't have anything against, you know, gay community at all. But some religious fundamentalist groups do because that's part of their religion. And is the strategy you have to change people's religion and or deeply held cultural worldviews? That's a big order. That's a really tall order, and I am not optimistic that that can be done. Um, So, when you have things that are no compromise like that, like like a deeply held religious belief or a deep cultural belief, what do you do? You know, the thing that we couldn't compromise over in the Civil War uh, during during the um, in the South, rightfully so, which was which was slavery. That's something that should you should never compromise on that. Um, We fixed that by by having the bloodiest war in, in American history. When you have deeply held beliefs, I think we need to make I think things that we can't compromise over will occur, but we need to make sure that there are fewer opportunities to come to those no compromise situations. And I think the way you do that is by letting people live their own lives and decentralizing power and taking kind of, it's it's a libertarian strategy to these things. But, but yeah, can I,
0: go ahead, yeah, go ahead, just go ahead. To, just to jump in, because we we've had kind of two separate conversations under the same umbrella and they are two distinct things because initially we were talking about neighborhoods and communities, uh, larger communities and states, like the idea of a North Carolinian hating a Californian and vice versa, which is distinctly different from like a religious group or uh, a group with an immutable characteristic like, you know, sexuality or race or ethnicity. Those are two distinctly different things. And so I think when we're talking about civics, we don't want Californians hating Nevadans and Nevadans hating Arizonans and you know not to get too far into the weeds because i you know i agree you can't you can't change people's minds about or you can but you can't force them to change about deeply held beliefs of whatever kind i still think honestly that the solution to living in a div- in a country as diverse as ours is to encourage and allow affinity and discourage hate wherever you can and and i'm really kind of speaking back to the original question you posed which was you know, state via state, town via town, because the fact of the matter is, is although people cluster, there are conservatives living in California, and there are liberals living in North Carolina, a purple state, but there are liberals living in uh, West Virginia and Texas, and conservatives living in Seattle. And so, I think if we can remind each other that the other, the person we speak about as the other, is eating a sandwich next to us, we just don't know. They're they're all around us, right? And so. There are religious people everywhere. There are conservative people and liberal people everywhere of all stripes. And I just think we need to welcome them into our community in the way that that we understand the kind of classical liberal or new liberal ethos, which is encouraging tolerance and promoting in-group affinity, which does not mean demonizing the other side. And that doesn't mean that we have to obliterate religious beliefs for that to happen, but we just have to encourage people, at least on a community or a state or a town level, to take pride in the community they're a part of without hating another community
1: yeah, you know and and I, I, I do agree. Obviously, and I, I think I should probably emphasize this. I think it's a good idea that people don't hate each other, and I I, I think that sort of because anti- I am glad you made the point. <laughs> let me, let me crystal, let me be crystal clear with that. I think it's good that people when people don't hate each other. I think it's good when we can, when I can look across the aisle to you know a liberal or a conservative or a Marxist or or, or, or some other political or cultural idea, and I can we we can we can get along. We can have a cup of coffee together and and be okay. That's the kind of world that I love and that's that's the the kind of place that I I like to be. But not everybody agrees with that. So what do you do you know what do we what what do we do with that? And yeah, you you know, communities are diverse, even even my home count, uh, where I am now, the county that I'm in now, it's not like everyone here is a Trump supporter, although a majority of them are. There are plenty of Biden supporters here. There, there are plenty of Southern Democrats here and but but that political difference, I think, is mitigated by a cultural similarity, right. And maybe actually, maybe it's that. Maybe what I'm advocating for is basically what the, you know, national conservatives or the, you know, solidarity focused lefty types um, are wanting to do at a national level. I just want to do it at at a local level. I think, you know, we don't need to all have one national culture. But it's those local cultures that underpin other differences, be they religious or political, um, that bring us together in the end. I just think those sorts of cultures occur at a local level and not at a, certainly not a, not even at a state level. I, I think they basically a- occur in the level of communities. So, so maybe that splits it there.
0: Robert Putnam, in his book, Bowling Alone, talks about how the atomization of American society kind of accelerated after we lost a lot of the communal establishments that allowed Americans of differing backgrounds to congregate with one another, right? Because kind of now, the only ways that people really get together in person, you know, imagining a world without COVID is, uh, (laughs) perish the thought, is really through work, Or your friend group, right? Which you probably met at work or, or, or somewhere else, right? Whereas 50, 60 years ago, the reason that the book is named Bowling Alone is because there used to be a lot of organizations that allowed people from disparate backgrounds to get together and metaphorically break bread, right? Bowling alleys were... Ascendant in the 50s. And that allowed people to get together through bowling leagues and meet people who weren't their neighbors. You know, they didn't live two doors down and they didn't go to church with them and hang out. You know, and so with the kind of the death of bowling alleys or the church or fraternal organizations, hobby groups, the things that have kind of faded into the background over the last few decades, we don't give Americans enough opportunity to see their commonality right like you can be of a different religious background or a different cultural background uh within a city but maybe you both like the same sports team when you put those jerseys on together and, and at least i'm i'm all for demonizing or hating a group yeah. that that is just a jersey right like yeah, the idea that like arbitrary. yeah when i put this this uh this green shirt on and you put that orange shirt on I hate your guts, but importantly, at the end of the game, you take the orange shirt off and I take the green shirt off and we don't hate each other anymore. I just really hate you when you're wearing that jersey, right? And that kind of commonality where you can put a bunch of orange shirts on and yeah, underneath it, yeah, you have like you know, good old boys and recent immigrants and Muslims and Christians and all these other things. But in that moment, when they're all cheering for their sports team, which represents them, right? Like that sports team in many ways is an ambassador of their culture that is then exported to other parts of the country and allowing people of disparate backgrounds to come together to cheer a thing, right? And yeah, like it's just at the end of the day, it's just sports, but like, it's a, it's a very important totem. And I think that creating more opportunities for Americans of disparate backgrounds who live within the same community to find commonalities like that, again, is important. And I think that if we can foster more opportunities for that, you know, more bowling leagues, hypothetically or not, I think we can help provide a kind of salve to the, the sickness that you're kind of touching on. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and I, 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 I want to agree with that. <laughs> well, I want to agree with that, uh, but there's no bowling alley that a Californian and a North Carolinian can both go to after work. That's true. Uh, That's and true. so geography, you know, proximity plays a big role here. Uh, you know, I think we agree that there are cultural, you can have some sort of cultural agreement with people with whom you have other disagreements with, like political or religious, etc. cetera. A, I, an, an example that I think is not often talked about with that is um, Cherokee here in Southern Appalachia, there's very little distinction. Perhaps I shouldn't go that far. But there are more similarities between like Cherokee here in Southern Appalachia are Southern Appalachian. like we we share so much. It, the the culture that we share is pretty similar. It's not that, you know, I, I think a lot of people in like liberal types in in cities have this very strange, sort of like noble, savage view of Native Indians, um like the Cherokee. But I, you know, I go to the grocery store and there's Cherokee here and they're no different from me. And the reason they're no different from me really is that we share that Southern Appalachian culture. You know, we both like NASCAR and we shoot guns and we do, you know. They're,
0: yeah, you're swimming in the same water.
1: Yeah, it's all right. We're swimming in the same water. That's right. So that's an example, I think, of culture underpinning and mitigating racial differences, certainly um, differences that up until recent history were were the differences they were the lines upon which people divided themselves and now fortunately they're, they're not but i i just don't think that we can because here's where this discourse sounds like it is it sounds like we're this sounds like nostalgia it really does it sounds like we're looking back at america that once was and wishing why can't we go back there when we all kind of got along a little better, you know, maybe we need a new war or something to really unite us. Hope oh, No, we don't need that. I don't want that. Um, but I don't think there's, a, there's an America to go back to. I think we're in an America now where a lot of people hate each other, right? And that's, that's not great. I wish we didn't, but we do. A lot of people hate each other. And we are geographically distanced and isolated, and our cultures are highly divergent, far more divergent than they than they have been in the past. And our politics have been centralized in one king of the hill game. Where do we go? I don't think we can go back to that America that we as new, you know classical slash new liberals look to, or the conservatives sort of look to. I don't think there is that America to go back to because the environment's changed. We have Twitter, we have the internet, we have all sorts of things, and we have a much bigger centralized government that we have to all get on board with for some reason and play ball with together. So, So I guess I'm asking the question to you, can we go back to the future, man, or is there only like a future to go to?
0: Yeah, well, I agree with the nostalgia point, but it's a, I mean, nostalgia is never real. Any kind of nostalgia that we feel on a personal or communal or societal level for anything is to kind of go full circle here. It's like a story that we're just cutting a bunch of stuff out of, right? I mean, even if you look to your own memories, Sean, like I'm sure you have childhood memories that you're looking to with, you know, rose-colored glasses. I certainly have mine, you know. And the nostalgia from the childhood that I miss, it is a fiction. What I'm really doing is instead of yearning for a past, I'm just yearning for my present circumstances to be partially alleviated. Like, I don't actually want to be six, but I like want to not pay bills. (laughs) That's kind of, I mean, that is sort of what nostalgia is. It's looking to the past that never existed in an attempt to try and escape present harms or present uncomfortableness, you know, present anxieties.
1: I I totally agree. And I think that a lot of the kind of strategies that people who are concerned about polarization discuss are looking back to fictions just as much right i think i think it's that kind of nostalgia so because we have been talking about like things used to be better we used to go bowling right we used to we used to agree more what's the future what's a vision of the future that we can go to that isn't merely the past that we wish was
0: now, I, I don't know if we'll ever see eye to eye in terms of, I mean, because I'm pitching a society in which we encourage affinity and encourage strong feelings about one's town, one's city, one's nation without hating the other. I mean, this is just a, I'm literally spitballing. This might sound like the stupidest idea ever because I just came up with it.
1: That's okay. That, that's what this stuff's for, man.
0: I mean, honestly, an Olympics style event that takes place entirely within the nation Where each state gets one team that represents it, Um, and this happens every year or a couple of years or whatever. And I know we kind of already have it with something like baseball or whatever, but not really because we don't view those baseball players, football players, or you know, name the sport. We don't view them as representatives of our state. We sort of view them as representatives of our city, but not really. But if we could encourage that kind of ambassadorship through friendly competition, in which that tension that builds up between communities. And I think the Olympics has done this a lot for the global community, right? It is a healthy way for people to compete with one another and it's a healthy way for nations to feel good about one another and kind of razz other nations without that falling over into a kind of toxic xenophobia or war because you are allowing the nations to compete with one another in a non-lethal way. And I think that perhaps creating a similar structure in which states can compete with one another in friendly competition right and i could go with this with this idea you know you could you could then have your your state senators and congressmen and women like be ambassadors along with the sports people that are are drafted for this competition right like you just have to find a way to Make the pride that you have in your state not become a toxic kind of hatred for another state or community. And you, we have to find ways in our increasingly ethnically and racially diverse societies for people within those states and cities to find commonality that is getting harder to find as we transition into a multiracial nation and a much more multireligious nation, right? It's not impossible because the distance between an Italian and an Irishman 100 years ago was vast. And now it doesn't exist, really, you know, aside from like a difference in cuisine, there's no tension between someone who is of Irish descent and Italian descent whose ancestors came over 100 years ago. It's just that would be absurd. But I think we can find a way to alleviate a lot of the existing tensions that can happen between let's call them old or existing communities and relatively new ones by giving more opportunities for those disparate communities to find commonalities with one another. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, it it, it does. And I, I don't I don't think the national state by state Olympics is a stupid idea at all. I think that's awesome. I would love to wave my North Carolina flag while we're while our state wrestlers are wrestling the Californian team. That sounds like a barrel of monkeys. That sounds <laughs> like fun. No I I I agree I think what I might point out with this is that, yes, you do need people, we do want people to associate with each other amicably, but I tend to think that that association across religious and political and cultural lines has to be voluntary. I don't think we can just force people together and what the thing about voluntary association is that people also have to be able to voluntarily disassociate if there are impassable absolutely if there are impassable disagreements we don't just say someone's a winner and someone's a loser because it's that kind of system which is a kind of system we have today particularly in the federal government that i think antagonizes people because you're making one side a winner and one side a loser and you're doing it over and over and over again. And that doesn't make us on the same side, I don't think.
0: I agree. But at the end of the day, it is all story-driven. In the conversation I had in the first podcast episode with John Wood Jr., I cited a statistic that basically, and I am, I am having to paraphrase it because it's not directly in front of me, but parents in, I think, 19, late 1950s or around 1960 were asked how they would feel about, at the time they just asked, how would you feel about your daughter marrying someone from another political group, right? If you're a Republican, how would you feel about your daughter marrying a Democrat? If you were a Democrat, how would you feel about your daughter marrying a Republican? And, you know, pretty overwhelming majorities were okay with it, right? Like high 60s, low 70s were totally fine with it. They asked that same question again, I think 10 years ago, but modernized it. They say, how would you feel if your son or daughter married someone from the other political tribe? And it, it was like 30%. But that that's all just driven by the stories that have been built up over the last 50 to 60 years. I mean, telling ourselves a nostalgic falsehood that America was somehow more united pre-Civil Rights Act is insane, but we're somehow more divided now. It doesn't make sense. It's all a result of toxic storytelling that has dripped into the culture that has made Republicans and Democrats less likely to marry each other than the black-white intermarriage rate in 2020, which is almost 90% approval and yet there's 30-something percent approval for your son or daughter marrying someone in the other political tribe? That's insane. And it's all story-driven. So, you know, I think that that is why (laughs) to bring us full circle and begin to draw draw our, our, uh, our episode to a close. But not to say that I don't enjoy this conversation, and I would love to have another one with you at some point in the future. But I think that that's why the Narratives Project is important and projects that allow us to step back and understand that the stories that we take as truth are actually just narratives. And if we can see those narratives from a bird's eye view, deconstructed and analyzed by people like yourself, that hopefully that allows us to kind of take down the temperature in the room and understand that the stories that we're reading and hearing aren't the whole story and that hopefully by listening and reading other stories, we can get a more holistic view of things and hopefully begin to understand the other side a little more so that when one side defends Kyle Rittenhouse as a patriot and the other side demonizes him as a white supremacist, if we can get those two people to read the other version of the story, at least maybe they can have a little more empathy towards one another.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. I think at, at least personally for me, because, you know, I, I'm you know, I'm not a fence sitter. I I have my own political views and my own political philosophy about things. And when I look at these events, I have my own guttural reaction to them too. And I fall on a side, not always one side, often there, it's it's either side. I fall on a side as well. But what I'm doing with the narratives project by pushing myself just one degree back from it Is very useful just for me to look at the other side or to or to rather find the sort of look at the colder, just more mechanisms and structures that are going on here um, without taking some sort of normative political stance on something. It's really useful for for me personally to do that. And my hope with the project is, is that it is helpful for other people to, they don't have to, you don't have to agree with the other side. And you don't have to think they're you know, they're right, but to just see how someone else could reasonably think that. Because often, and I ask people this question all the time, which is, you know, it, whatever it is, the Kyle Rittenhouse thing or, or, or what have you. It's like, well, what do you think about someone who thinks, let's say you think he's a white supremacist who went there and murdered a bunch of protesters. And I would ask you, well, what do you think about people who think he's a community, you know, he's kind of a community fender, and, and actually was with the good guy here. Why do they think that? And the answer is, they're always the same. The answer is, they're stupid, they're brainwashed, or they're evil. Those are the only answers, you know, 99% of the time when you have something politically divisive like this, and I ask someone that question, those are the answers they give. They're stupid, they're brainwashed, or they're evil right when the truth of the matter is if you take a step back and try and look at the thing through their eye try to do a little bit of frame switching right look at it through their eyes you can see how a reasonable people who's not stupid who's not brainwashed and who's not evil could come to a conclusion with which one deeply disagrees with. And hopefully that's what I can help people kind of see is that the other side, although I'm sure some people are stupid and some people are brainwashed and some people are certainly evil, but most people who take those sorts of contrapartisan political views are none of those things. They're usually just normal people who have a different worldview and got to their conclusion reasonably. And I, I I hope that's what the narratives project can do. And the good part about this project is that maybe my strategy of fixing Polarization is right, and and maybe yours is right. But the narratives project, these sorts of analyses can help either of them. They're just more information for us to try and have these kinds of discussions that we've had today, which is okay, this is how things work. This is how different people see the world. This is how we have cross cultural conflicts. Now, what do we do? Hopefully, the narratives project helps. Just give more information so that we can have more fruitful debates and discussions about ways to fix these sorts of problems that I think we all disagree with, or that I think we all recognize, let's say.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, information is the antidote to ignorance, and ignorance is so often what drives hate. Now, there's a final question that I ask every guest on this show, and I think, (laughs) and you would think that this question was specifically written for this episode because of what we've been talking about. (laughs) So we're limited. As individuals in all sorts of ways, we're limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy, like you and I have discussed today. Even the most well intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people all the time. You know, every North Carolinian can't be thinking of every Californian, let alone every North Carolinian, right? It's impossible. Exactly right. It's impossible. So, is there someone or a group of people in your life or just in the nation or the world at large? right now, that you would like to take a moment and offer more empathy to?
1: Oh, you know, what a question. Good lordy lord. More empathy to. So those kinds of questions can be tricky because if I say just the people with whom I disagree, you'll be able to figure out whom I agree with. Because my strategy, you know, I, I'm kind of a obviously through this conversation, you can tell that I'm a bit of a localist. I think people best live their lives locally and governments should be modeled on top of of that. What I see is a pretty self-evident fact. And I think that empathy, there's a lot of empathy is a tricky thing, right? Because there's a lot of um, cognitive cost in trying to go out and, and feel something for someone else, which is, at least that's how the way that I think of empathy. But maybe what I want to have is a little bit more like respect for those with whom I disagree with and may even dislike. That's maybe what I would want to offer to people. And maybe that is something like empathy, and and maybe it's not. And here's the group, actually. Yeah, it just came to me. And it's funny, this is actually a group that I do have some affinity for radicals. I really, really like radicals, far right radicals and far left radicals. I I really, really like them. I find them very interesting people. They're on the fringes of society. They're a little weird and a little wild. And I think they are often hated (laughs) by by the more moderate center in so far as we have one and their own respective moderate sides. But I think there's a great deal of utility for all of us to not disregard radicals, be again, be they far right or far left radicals, and to kind of listen to what they're saying. Because for one reason is that, hey, some ideas we take as self-evident today were once radical. That's a pretty obvious fact. So maybe these some of these radical ideas might be useful to us. But also, they sort of give you a little bit of context of like the range of human perspectives you know if you've never spoken face to face to an anarcho communist let's say you don't really know what they're all about and what they're like and that there's a there's that kind of person and and I have a number of times or if you haven't spoken to a a far right like whatever neo neo monarchist let's say as I have I've I've spoken to those folks you won't know that there is that kind of flavor of of humans living in America today. Now, I guess not everybody needs to go out and make friends with radicals. You don't have to do that at all because there's a lot of cost to that too. But those are the group of people that I think get a, a lot of crap on a daily basis and are just rejected from the discourse and I think that, you know, I'm a I am a disgustingly big umbrella kind of pluralist. I am probably more for What people think of as diversity than anyone on the left and anyone on the right i'm a hardcore pluralist and i think there's room enough in our discourse at the very least for people with drastically different viewpoints to come together to at least discuss we don't have to go bowling but maybe we can have a chat first
0: Sean, thank you so much for the work that you're doing with narrativesproject.com, and thank you for the wonderful and thought-provoking discussion you've had with me today.
1: This has been a lot of fun, man. I I really appreciate it, and I, uh, I definitely hope we can have more of these in the future.